Okay, so we come down now to our, our fifth saying from the, from the cross, I thirst. Now, as we suggested in the, in the last talk, it has been suggested that on the cross the Lord Jesus quoted Psalm 22 out loud. And that's why he starts off, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is the beginning of Psalm 22. And then he uh, it says that the scripture might be fulfilled, he saith, I thirst. And it's been pointed out that this word for fulfilled really means finished. And I think we should also bear in mind that the Lord Jesus doesn't really seem to have been in the habit of going around purposefully trying to fulfill Bible prophecy. So it's not as if he thought, right, well I've got to say I thirst, I've got to say, sorry, I've got to say it is finished, so um, I've got to say I thirst. I don't think that's what he was doing. So, it's been suggested that he was quoting the scripture out loud and that's why he wanted to have the, uh, the drink to, uh, to wet his throat so that he could, he could uh, continue. Now, of course, if that is the case, then we're reminded yet once again of how the word of God was in his mind. His, thy word was in my heart, uh, as the Psalms prophesied. And it was through the strength of the word that he was able to overcome and to achieve that fine victory that he did. Now, in a sense, this has become such a cliche, hasn't it, amongst us as Christadelphians. The power of the word. Do the readings. Do this. Do that. We must read. The word of God is powerful, you know. Yeah, we've heard all this before. And it's nothing new. And in a sense, it, it's become such a cliche that the power of it has, has rather rubbed off, has rather left us. And yet, it is also gloriously true. That it was because the word was in his heart that he was able to overcome as he did, that he was able to set us this fine example. The fact that the word was going through his mind constantly is one of the great characteristics of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And as we've said, he asks us to pick up his cross and follow him, to make his cross our cross. And so his attitude to the word must be an example for us. Now I want to think specifically then about I thirst. Now you remember how in the Garden of Gethsemane his sweat was as it were great drops of blood. So he was suddenly losing moisture of a nervous tension of bearing our sins, of carrying the world's salvation, as well as his sense of the glory of God, his sense that God was working through him, uh, would have sapped the moisture from him. There would have been a loss of lymph, a loss of body fluid. And that's why in Psalm 22 verse 14, which we said was a psalm all about the feelings of the Lord Jesus in his death, he says that he felt he had been poured out like water. I have been poured out like water. And that connects with those well-known words in Isaiah 53, verse 12, where it says, He poured out his soul unto death. And in Psalm 22, he says, I have been poured out like water. And in Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul. He poured himself out. It shows how God was working through the effort that Christ made. Now this pouring out of his soul, I mean, to pour out is an allusion, of course, to pouring out a liquid. It's as if this loss of moisture which he experienced was just a physical sort of representation of what he was doing to himself deep inside him. He poured out his soul unto death. 
and the physical loss of moisture that he experienced was a reflection of this pouring out of himself. This was a picking up of the cross. This was a conscious act that he did. It's easy, isn't it, to think that if we have some physical calamity in our life, let's say we lose our job, or perhaps we lose a limb, it's easy to think, oh well, yeah, I'm carrying the cross. And yet we are asked to pick up the cross. We're asked to do something that goes against our grain. That is a picking up of the cross. That is the idea of pouring out ourselves. To go against the grain. Not to just passively accept whatever situation we're in, but to pick up the cross as an act of the will. For example, the Lord Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, for a young brother or sister who just likes travelling, that's very easy to do that, isn't it? It's very convenient to obey that commandment. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7 about some people could rise to the height of choosing not to get married because they want to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Then some of us who just don't want to get married, it's not something that appeals to everybody. It's very easy to, for such a person to say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm following this high example. Take a sister who likes cooking, entertains the visiting speaker, gives them a nice meal. So picking up the cross, that's doing what actually comes easily. And we can all analyse our own lives and see how much of our spirituality, maybe 90% of it, is only in fact a confirmation of our own personality. It's an underlining of a way of life that we choose to live. We're happy, we're comfortable, perhaps, belonging to a community. We're comfortable or happy coming out to a religious meeting two or three times a week, maybe. Now, what I'm saying is that the idea of picking up the cross is to actually consciously do something that is against our grain. Something which we have to do as an act of the will, not just because it's a confirmation of our own natural personality. As I say, the very picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his agony is a perfect cameo, a little picture, a little physical representation of what, what we're talking about. And so Christ poured out his soul as an act of the will, and this was physically represented or physically manifested by this dehydration that he, he suffered. So it seems that he was dehydrated. Remember in Psalm 22 when he says to God, you've forsaken me, you're not hearing my prayer. He says, why are you so far from the voice of my roaring? It's as if a, like a lion crying out, a lion roaring to God. And so this again would suggest that he was hoarse, that he was crying with strong crying and tears, we're told in Hebrews 5. That it would have taken moisture to do that strong crying that there was, if you like, a lot of noise being made. Strong crying and tears. Again, a loss of moisture in the tears. And as we said in Romans 8, he seems to allude to that and says that now Christ is groaning for us in heaven with the same intensity, but groaning that is without words, without the physical noise which there was on the cross, but with the same, um, with the same intensity. I wonder if Samson was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ when he had that great victory over the Philistines and then he nearly dies of thirst in the midst of that spectacular victory. I wonder if that again is a little type of the thirst of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Now, there's no doubt then as we said that uh, Christ was physically thirsty on the cross. 
There's a lot of other references to thirst in the Psalms, which as I say are all uh, messianic. As the heart panteth after the water book, so panteth my soul, my innermost being, after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat, while they continually sound to me on the cross, Where is thy God? When shall I come and appear before God? Now, the idea of appearing before God is priestly language. Here in Hebrews 9.24, we're told that Christ now appears in the presence of God as a priest to make intercession for us. And he will appear again as the high priest appeared on the Day of Atonement. So, he was thirsting because he was looking forward so much to that day when he would appear before God when he would be a priest for our sins before the throne of God as we've said in Psalm 16 he says he looks forward to being resurrected and exalted to God's right hand because there at God's right hand he says there are pleasures forevermore and what's he doing at God's right hand? we're told in Hebrews he's offering up our prayers at God's right hand so the pleasures forevermore at thy right hand the pleasures forevermore that he, those pleasures that he looked forward to were the pleasure of mediating for us offering up our prayers gaining our forgiveness terribly easy isn't it to think that the Lord Jesus is in some sense passive that the Lord Jesus is some, it's somehow passive in heaven and yet the feelings of Christ and of God for that matter are very much there and spoken of in the scriptures on the cross then according to Psalm 42 verse 1 to 3 he was panting after God his physical thirst was only a reflection of this spiritual thirst that he had this longing to go to heaven and to intercede for us before the throne of God because as we said the language of appearing before God is the language of a priest appearing in God's presence to offer sacrifices for other people now again we see that Christ's awareness of us dominated his thinking this was his earnest desire to see our salvation and that really underlines the need for prayer and the attitude we should have because this was what Christ was longing for this is what motivated him this is what inspired him in his agony the idea that through his work he would be in a position where he could be our high priest now if we appreciate that our attitude to prayer becomes something different it does become a privilege and it's something that we want to do because we will see that in fact the Lord Jesus Christ suffered in order that this could be possible that as with all privileges and all our spiritual blessings in Christ familiarity has bred in each of us a certain amount of not contempt but over familiarity we have come to perhaps assume too much spiritually the wonder of prayer something which, which is perhaps lost on us but there's a wonder in all these things it's not surprising we have this problem because for most of us the majority of our adult lives have been spent in Christ we can scarcely remember what it was like to be outside Christ and this is perhaps our number one problem this familiarity that leads us almost to contempt so getting back to the spiritual thirst oh my God, my God 
Psalm 63 verse 1 My soul thirsteth after thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Remember how in Isaiah 53 we're told that Christ is like a green shoot growing up in a dry land. The dryness represents the spiritual dryness and barrenness of Israel. You've got this paradox of this green plant that needs lots of water growing in a dry desert. It's as if to say that Christ's spirituality, his spiritual character flourished, although around him there was absolutely no encouragement whatsoever. And yet he grew beautifully and spiritually. Although around him, as I say, it was dry and there was no encouragement. This is how he felt, as a thirsty man thirsting for water, thirsting for God in the dry and thirsty land of Israel. And above all, as I say on the cross, this was true of him. This thirst that he had for God, this desire to be with God. Something that's easy to forget, that Christ longed to be in heaven with God. He longed for that moment. He thirsted to be with God. I stretch forth my hands unto thee, Psalm 143. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Now, Christ says, I'm thirsty like a thirsty land. Now the thirsty land is a symbol of Israel. As we've said, Christ was the green shoot growing up in the thirsty land of Israel. So Christ is saying, I'm thirsting for you. I feel like I'm a thirsty land. And Israel was the thirsty land spiritually. They had no water because spiritually they were so dry and cold and hard. In other words, Christ felt as spiritually bound as Israel were. I stretch forth my hands to thee, my soul thirsted for thee as a thirsty land. But we said that the thirsty land was a symbol of Israel. Christ, the, the green shoot growing up in the thirsty land of Israel. He's saying that he felt as spiritually dry and empty and barren as Israel. Now, this ties up with the way that thirst is a punishment for Israel's sins. Thou shalt serve thine enemies, God had said, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. Now we suggested that Christ was crucified naked. We suggested that and talk about woman behold thy son, but he's put to a naked or an open shame if we crucify him afresh. In hunger. Sure Christ had fasted before he died on the cross. It's been pointed out that when his side was pierced there came out blood and water which would be unusual if he had eaten. So it would seem that his bowels were empty at the time of his death. In hunger and in thirst, or we know he was definitely thirsty on the cross, and in nakedness, we've suggested Christ was crucified naked, and in want of all things, or that so true crucifixion. But this is the punishment for Israel's sin. And it all came upon the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 49 verse 10, the next reference. They shall not any more hunger or thirst, once they repent. When Israel had sinned, they did hunger and thirst. Ye are they that forsake the Lord, Isaiah 65, therefore ye shall be hungry, ye shall be thirsty, ye shall be ashamed. Again, exactly the same with Jesus on the cross. Hungry, thirsty, ashamed. Reproach have broken mine heart. 
he was ashamed. Remember how it says earlier in his life, they laughed him to scorn. He wasn't a hard man, he wasn't cold, he couldn't just detach himself. They laughed him to scorn. The scorn was something that he felt inside himself. They laughed at him until he reached that point. Hosea 2, let Israel put away her whoredoms, lest I set her like a dry land. What did we see? Psalm 143, Christ said, My soul thirsts for God like a thirsty land, like a dry land. But now Israel was made a dry land, a thirsty land, same word, because of their sins. I will send a famine in the land, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst, spiritually. So, as I say, the punishment for Israel's sins came upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said in the last talk, this isn't just something academic or fascinating. The fact is that this means, in practice, that the Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what it feels like to sin. He knows what it is like to feel every bit as if you are a sinner who is being punished for what you've done wrong. And as we've said, when he said, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? It seems to me that he really did take this right into his heart and he really did feel that he had sinned. That's why he went into this crisis. Now, this, as I say, is the closeness that is possible between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, he is able to absolutely empathise with all our weaknesses and our failures. By empathise, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. For example, if you break your leg, I can sympathise with you. But I can't empathise with you because I've never broken my own leg. If I'd broken my own leg, I could get inside, inside you and say, I know exactly what it feels like. I can't do that because I've not broken my leg. But the Lord Jesus Christ can get inside us that far because of the extraordinary nature of his sufferings and his temptations. This is why the cross had to be as terrible as it was. This is why his life was as terrible as it was. So that he could truly be able to enter inside the feelings of every single one of his servants. And so, as we say, he feels able, he feels able, and he is able, to know the feelings, as Paul says, of those who are out of the way, of those who have gone out of the truth. And he's certainly able to know our feelings who slip up in our own walk, even though we might remain in the way. So in summary then, the significance of him saying, I thirst, is partly because perhaps he was so desperately wanting to complete his quoting of the scripture. If that's so, you ask, well, why did he want to quote it out loud? If indeed he did quote it out loud, and I would suggest the reason he did it was to just demonstrate to the whole world publicly that God's word was completely in his heart because if it was just for his own comfort of course he could have recited it in his own mind the second reason why he said I thirst I suggested was because it symbolised his spiritual thirst for God this sense of unfulfilment that he had this desire earnestly for the kingdom basically to be with God the outside our human nature and in his thirst physically he was sharing the punishment for Israel's sins he was truly our representative and he was coming to know what it feels like 
to be a sinner. And in that sense, he is therefore not afar from us. But he really is truly our representative, and he truly is one with us. Jesus, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest with thee. Israel's strength and consolation, the hope of all the saints thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So, as we've said, the Lord Jesus had this spiritual crisis when he said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He goes through Psalm 22 in his mind, maybe quoting it out loud, and he comes to realize that, in fact, he has not sinned, and that, in fact, he has achieved God's purpose of having a man to be the representative of the human race, could overcome sin, and now he has this great sense that he has actually achieved our salvation. It is finished. And again, that's typical of the way the Spirit seems to say so much by way of understatement. In Greek and Aramaic, there was even no word for it, just finished. It is finished. I mean, how much is comprehended there, just in that, even in English, that tiny little word. It's rather like when Jesus rises from the dead and Mary meets him and she thinks he's the gardener. There's something somehow beautiful about that. It's way it's sort of an understatement. Or then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord? Well, yeah, they were glad. It's all, to me, an indication that this must be written by God. Now, as we said, the Lord Jesus now is getting increasingly weak, and speech was getting increasingly difficult. It is finished. So what was finished? This is the question. What was finished? It is finished. I think that question is answered in John 17 verse 4 where he says I have glorified thee on the earth I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do I have glorified thee on the earth I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do and then he dies and he says it is finished what is finished then? glorifying God on the earth and the work which he was given to do what does this mean, to glorify God on the earth? This word glory occurs so often, doesn't it? Remember, Moses said those wonderful words, show me thy glory. And the response to that was that the angel passed in front of him and declared the name of the Lord. said, Yahweh, a God full of mercy, God full of compassion, a God full of grace, God full of truth, God full of visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, etc. So the glory of God refers to the characteristics of God's name. God's characteristics. That's the glory of God. So, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What was the work he was given to do? To glorify God on the earth. How did he glorify God on the earth? By showing forth 
in, its, in their fullness the characteristics of God and this is what I think um, he was talking about in John 17 where he says just before he went out to be uh, arrested and to die I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it and we've said that the name of God is like the glory of God the characteristics of God I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it this is said in his prayer he lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays just before he's arrested and dies so he, he was going to declare God's name on the cross this was the work that God had given him to do and it was this which he finished when he said it is finished now when Christ died God was glorified there's many verses that imply this Father glorify thy name this is in his agony in Gethsemane and there came a voice from heaven saying I have both glorified it and will glorify it again at the cross now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him in him in other words the glory of God was in his mind if God be glorified in him God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him one of the difficult words to juggle with but what it's basically saying is that when Christ died the glory of God will be revealed in that and now O Father glorify me with thine own self God's character with the glory which I had with thee I have manifested thy name this is again prayed just before Jesus dies so on the cross the name of God, the character of God, the glory of God was fully declared and that's why, remember those, that, that centurion when he saw the death of Christ and he observed the Lord Jesus in his time of dying that truly this man was the son of God certainly this was a righteous man it's as if there was somehow a sense of the, the moral glory of Christ coming out of him in a very difficult way to describe I think that's why these people came up to the cross and first of all they shouted insults as we've said and then later on it says they came up and hit their breasts and turned around and went away it's as if slowly they started to realise there was a righteousness here a holiness an uncanny righteousness that it was impossible to come close to now Christ said it is finished when he finally died this is just as he dies it seems to me that Christ's manifestation of the Father's glory of the Father's character was progressive and he was steadily showing it more and more until that point in his actual moment of death when he actually gives up his last breath it seems to me that then it is finished the work of glorifying God of showing God to the world is finished just in that moment of death remember in Hebrews 2 it says he was made perfect by his sufferings it doesn't mean he was made sinless because he was always sinless but he was made perfect he was made complete in some sense through his death on the, through his sufferings on the cross and finally in his death it's as if he reached in that moment of death some point of complete spiritual manifestation of the Father so much so that God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world unto himself so it seems that uh, in the Lord Jesus 
the fact that he was made perfect, that he reached some point of completeness spiritually, would suggest that, as I say, he was progressively, more and more, manifesting the character of God, right up until that point when he died. And in his death, in that actual moment of death, that was, if you like, God. That was God. Really. Of course it was Jesus, but that is the very essence of God. Christ, the sinless man, dying for sinners. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we read some difficult words. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Maybe we could just turn to them, because they're rather difficult to grapple with. 1 John 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, verse 16. In the context of talking about how we should love each other. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He, this is God, laid down his life. Yeah, wait a minute, we'd be a lot more comfortable if it said Christ laid down his life. But God laid down his life. And we know God didn't do that in himself. The point is that in that moment of Christ dying, in that moment he reached this point where he was just completely manifesting God. So that when he died, it was as if God had died for us. Not that God did, of course. Now, I'm not suggesting in any sense that Jesus was God or anything like that. This is all through God manifestation. I'm not saying it's nothing to do with the nature. Christ's nature was human. That's, that's the end of it, as far as I see it. But the fact is that God was in Christ. And in that moment of his death, as I say, he reached this point of, of complete manifestation of the Father. And I think that's, in a much smaller way, what happens in our lives, that we are developed by God to a certain point, which is known in his purpose. And then that's it. I'm sure we've all agonized about why some brothers and sisters die young and apparently think of health. And I think it's explicable in these terms that somehow they've reached a point, not one that we can perceive. And that's it. Why did Christ die at 33? It wasn't really that old. Why did he die on the very moment and the very day that he did? And it seems that he was, being, he was progressively developing in his spirituality. He was growing in his knowledge of the Father and in his manifestation of the Father. It's like when Christ says in John 10, he says, I, I know my sheep even as I know the Father. Um, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And that Greek there, for even so know I the Father, is this continuous tense. Even so I am growing to know the Father. It was something ongoing. In the same way as he says, as you know me, in other words, you're getting to know me. So I know I'm growing to know the Father. And so, I would suggest, as I say, that Christ was made perfect by what he suffered. That he reached this point of, of ultimate perfection and then he died. Now, the point of that, as I say, is that because he laid down his life for us, because God laid down his life for us in Christ, therefore, John says, we also ought to lay down our lives for each other. So, it is finished. His whole manifestation of God, 
the work that God has given him to do, to glorify him, to show forth his character on the earth. We're told that Christ, having loved his own that were in the world, I'm sure you can finish that quote, he loved them unto the end. John 13 verse 1 Having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end the end is the same Greek word that's translated finished it is finished, it is ended having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end unto the finish in other words when Christ died it was then that he had loved us unto the end or as some interpreters uh, put it, he loved us unto the end of love. In other words, he went right to the end of this concept of love. In that moment of his death, he loved us unto the end, unto the finish. When he said, it is finished, that is when he had completely manifested the Father. That was when he had completely shown us the perfect, the, the perfect, absolute definition of love. In that moment of death, you see what I mean? Not just in the lead up to it, but in that very moment. I have declared unto them, he said, thy name. And I will declare it. That's in his death. When he showed us love to the end. He goes on, that, so that, the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. God's character, which he declared above all in his death, so that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. This is the whole reason why he did it. I am going to do this. Don't forget he said these words before he died on the cross. I'm going to do this. I'm going to declare your name on the cross. I'm going to show completely your character in dying in that moment of my death for, for others. So that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. So by beholding that finished perfection of the Lord Jesus, that height of love to which in his final moment he, he reached, that pinnacle that he reached, as he's doing this, so that the love of God might be in us. Now if we don't have the love of God in us, Christ has died in vain. And the, the terror, the absolute horror of that but, but for us it, it's all been in vain it's, it should be something that worries us something that makes us fearful because it's something horrific it's something grotesque it's something beyond the limitation of words to get over how terrible that is that all this should be in vain but he did it so that the love of God might be in us in other words so that we would behold the sufferings of Christ and that it would touch us in our hearts it's an agony of my small life that I find that the cross of Christ moves me in a certain sense emotionally I suppose but I don't find it a motivation to love as I should do maybe or maybe not you know what I mean we can see, we can perceive, we can understand the theory of this and yet is it going to do anything now of course we don't, we don't want to be like Roman Catholics and go around with a sort of crucifix around our neck and put it all over the house or whatever I'm not suggesting we do that but somehow the fact that Christ loved us and gave his life for us and reached this high point of spiritual perfection this absolute pinnacle 
this should be, brethren and sisters, a lot more in our lives than it, than it is. I'm not saying we can get there by putting a crucifix around our neck or whatever. I'm not suggesting that. But somehow an awareness of the cross of Christ has got to be more important to us. It really has got to be. Now, no wonder the Lord Jesus said, you should really meet together about once a week to remember what I did for you. But that's a minimum. And even then, sadly, many of our meetings are not centred on the Lord Jesus Christ, sadly. Now there is something about seriously concentrating on the example of Jesus which should have an effect upon us. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 We all, with unveiled face, behold, as in a mirror, the glory, the character of the Lord Jesus, and are changed into the same image, from glory to glory. In other words, he says, we are looking. If we look, he says, with an unveiled face, at the glory of Christ then we will slowly be changed into that same image in other words if we appreciate his character if we think about his character if we meditate upon it it really will do something to us there is a power in his example there is a power in the cross and yet this is something that probably all of us are miles away from actually meditating upon the Lord Jesus do we have a relationship with him? Uh, it's typical of human nature isn't it that we overreact we all had all this stuff about do you know Jesus as your personal saviour and quite rightly we turn away from it and say look we don't all this emotional nonsense we want the truth that's absolutely right but the point is do we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ do we know him do we know him really as a person the sister in Poland summed this up beautifully in a way which maybe you can relate to she said when I think of Jesus or when I pray to God she said, it's like one part of my brain talking to another part of my brain that I call God. It's like I have a black box up here that's called God or Jesus. And that's where it stays. I don't know if you know how she feels, because I, I do completely. That we can make it also abstract. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ is there in heaven. And these things that we're reading really did happen. A man of our nature did achieve this height of spirituality. So that it, it was so so completely manifesting God that John could say God laid down his life that was the height to which he reached so then Jesus said in John chapter 4 I have meat to eat that ye know not of my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work so right back early on in his ministry John 4 he could say my food is to do the will of God and to finish his work he had this aim in his mind this moment when he would completely, fully, absolutely manifest God now what is the will of God? because he says I want to finish his work I want to do the will of him who sent me so finishing God's work is doing the will of God I'll say that again Jesus says my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work so to do the will of God is to finish God's work and Christ when he said it is finished therefore he had completed the will of God so what is the will of God? this is the will of God even your sanctification by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ the Lord is not willing that any should perish but he's willing, it is his will that we should all come to repentance this is the will of God, our sanctification. Christ said, I've come to do his will, to finish his work. 
when he died he at last knew that that work was finished that will was finished that at last we were sanctified that at last he had achieved our redemption as I said and this is a theme that comes out of all these studies the Lord Jesus was full of thoughts about our salvation our redemption this is what it seems to me enabled him to to go through with it he wants us and wanted us and still wants us with the same passion to be saved that's a wonderful thought that he wants us with this amount of passion that he had here this idea that filled his consciousness in this agony that he was in he wanted our salvation and he still wants it just as earnestly now can we really doubt him the problem is with all of us isn't it that we we live our, our lives in the truth almost as if our religion is our hobby as if there's so many other things to do in our life which there are of course but he wants us to be saved he was consumed with the idea of our salvation now that should be something that really is a wonderfully warming thought to us so then he said I have a baptism that is death and a resurrection to be baptised with and how am I straightened till it be accomplished as you might guess that word accomplished when he says I have a baptism to be baptised with and how am I straightened until it be accomplished the same word translated finished it is finished, it is accomplished he said I am so straightened in myself until it's finished so all through his life he was straightened he was somehow pressurised in himself until it is finished I am straightened until it be finished Luke 12 verse 50 I'm straightened until it's finished until it be accomplished his desire for our salvation was just something that that absolutely riveted him all through his life now he was a carpenter he was a working man younger brothers and sisters maybe father died young we don't know he was a man with all our distractions with all the things around us to take up our interests and our worry and our time and he lived his life as a man, as a working man and yet he was straightened until our salvation was finished, was accomplished now it is finished I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do and we know that that work that God gave Christ to do was our salvation and yet he said it's finished it's absolutely finished now and this ties up with what I was saying earlier that when Christ died on the cross I think he overcame all the sins that we would ever commit sin was finished in that sense in that sense the devil was killed now we know in our own lives the devil is still alive Hebrews 2.14 he killed him that had the power of death that is the devil he killed the devil it was finished Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 makes that well known prophecy about Messiah in the 70 weeks it says in Daniel 9 verse 24 that the purpose of Christ would be to finish transgression to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to finish transgression to make an end of sin New Testament language says he killed the devil it's as if as I say the whole 
almost the concept of sin in the eyes of God was destroyed when Christ died. And that's why it's possible for us, if we are in Christ, to be seen by God as without sin. Now, as I say, the implications of this are fantastic. That sin was completely destroyed, that every one of our sins that we commit was overcome. It is finished. The work that he was given to do is finished. In prospect, we were saved. In prospect, we were counted as if we were righteous. This is why we can have the confidence that we read off in the letter of John. That she may know, that she have eternal life, not that she might get it, but that she might know that you have eternal life. As we've said, we don't know ultimately, because we don't know what we may do in the future. But we should be, surely have some confidence that if Christ comes now, we will really be in the kingdom. That in prospect we have got everlasting life. That all our sins have been overcome. And I think if we bear that in mind, it will help us to overcome this uh, sense that maybe we have that, um, you know, if we sin, we've got to repent and be forgiven. Then we go off and we're good, and then we sin again and we're we're forgiven again. Of course, that raises the question, well, what happens if you die when you're not forgiven? Before, if you you do a sin you don't realise you've done, you're, you're going to be kept out of the kingdom. And I think all that is irrelevant thinking, because we really believe this, that all our sins were overcome. It is finished. He made an end of iniquity. He finished transgression when he died on the cross. All that is, is behind us. What we are asked to do is to acknowledge as far as we can our sinfulness and to try to walk in a manner that is appropriate for men and women who have received such great grace. It is finished. I think that's another, there's also an allusion there to how Moses, it says, finished the work of the tabernacle. He finished making the tabernacle, which is a symbol of us, of course. He reared it up, we're told in Exodus, and then it says, and so Moses finished the work. So Moses finished the work. The tabernacle, if you like, the ecclesia, was completed when Christ said, it is finished, in prospect. Revelation 10 verse 7 we read that there will come a time when Christ comes when the mystery of God will be finished it's the same word when Christ said it is finished and yet we know that ultimately it's not finished until the kingdom but if you see what I'm saying in a sense in prospect we are the kingdom in miniature now we are the kingdom in embryo now it has all been done sin has been overcome the kingdom has been established in that sense. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, here and now. It's the clear statement of the New Testament. Of course the kingdom isn't politically established, of course not. But the height of our position as men and women in Christ is something again which none of us probably appreciate as we should do. And if we did appreciate it, not only would it make us more positive in our own private lives, if we could look around at each other, see in each other someone who is in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus a man or a woman who is as far as we know on the road to the kingdom of God who has been finished in prospect who has been made ready for the kingdom in prospect whose sins have been forgiven in prospect but it would make us a lot different much more different in our personal relationships with each other I think so then Jesus did 
developed progressively until he reached this point, this absolute pinnacle, when he was completely manifesting God, and it was then that he died. As we've said, I think this is similar to our our own experience, that God is doing the same thing in the lives of all his children. This is why Paul could say in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, when he's about to die, he says, I have finished my course, and it's the same word, it is finished. He felt that somehow he had reached this point of spiritual completeness. Paul says to the Corinthians, this also we wish, even your perfection. In other words, he wished earnestly that they would come forward to that point of perfection that God had in mind for them. And again, Ephesians 4, he says, our aim is to be perfect, to come to the full knowledge of Christ unto a perfect man, a complete man, a finished man. It's the same word, it is finished. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we are developing until we reach this point. Maybe it's different for each of us, but when we completely manifest the glory, the character of the Father. And that is ultimately what we're here for in life, isn't it? To grow spiritually. And maybe we get sidetracked. We are sidetracked as a community. We are sidetracked individually. Because if you like, our Christadelphianism has got in the way of realizing that this is really what our life is all about. Developing until we come to that complete man where we are finished. And that is what we're working towards, brothers and sisters. And let's remember that is what each of us is working towards. And let's remember that when Christ died on the cross, God was then able to see each of us as if we were finished. Because it was completely finished when he died in prospect. And so that is perhaps how we should try to see each other. We see each other's failings, we see how people haven't developed, how they've got big parts of their lives they need to improve. We're quite correct in our analysis as usual of other people. But I, I mean what I'm saying is if God looks at you and I as if as if we're perfect, as if we're finished, well perhaps that's how we should try to look at each other. As if that brother or sister is in Christ in that perfect man, Christ Jesus, and that they are developing to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Well, we have uh, about 15 minutes break. We're running about 15 minutes behind schedule. So uh, let's have a break for 10, 15 minutes. And then we'll have the last session and the uh, question or comment session uh, straight after that. Unless anyone has any, any burning uh, thing they'd like to, uh, to say in five minutes.